Welcome to We Are Teachers, where you will hear conversations around the realities of teaching in the world today. I am Hazel Pulley. I'm the CEO of Excelsior Multi Academy Trust in Birmingham. I have with me for you today Detective Constable Jill Squires from the Multi Agency Safeguarding Hub in the West Midlands. Well, how are you doing, Jill? Not seen you for some time. Right, yes, thanks. I always think about where we met and it was about seven years ago and I think it was a session where there was an awareness raising around uh, female genital mutilation FGM and we had that well for me an instant um, resonance really and I felt that um, a bit of harmony going on there we need a bit of that in the world at the moment don't we and we just we just got together didn't we but I never knew actually how you got involved how did you get involved in this work? Um, kind of going back a little while now, back in 2009, I was in uniform and wanted to get back into the public protection world. Um, and there was a, a role that was advertised around honour-based abuse, forced marriage and female genital mutilation based at headquarters. So policy, policy side of things, really. Um, I thought it sounds interesting. Don't really know anything about any of those issues. I'll give it a go. Went for the interview, got the job and haven't looked back, really. Um, both subjects are something that I've become passionate about but particularly FGM so yeah that role's evolved really and followed me throughout my career since then. Just for our listener who may not just be aware of what some FGM is could you just detail that for us please? Yeah sure Um, it's amazing actually how many people still aren't aware of, of what FGM is and what it involves. In fact, I've had a call today from one of my officers asking about um, a, a particular type of FGM. But it, FGM is defined by the World Health Organization. Um, it invo- anything that involves a partial total removal of the external female genitalia or other injury to the female organs for non-medical reasons. And that's really important to remember that non-medical reasons issue. Once I'd heard that, it was at the sort of the same and began to understand the the well, the, the word used to be were used was violence um, to women um, that I began to get passionate about this myself. And I remember I think it was Lynn Featherstone, which was a minister, really pushing the government, wasn't it, to end FGM within a generation. How are we doing on that, do you think? Absolutely. And that is still something that the government holds strong that by um, 2030 will end FGM. Um, I think we've got to be realistic about the fact that this is a cultural practice and cultural practices don't change overnight. But having said that, we are getting there. The government have done lots of work and have raised awareness amongst professionals and communities. Um, And I think there is a change. There is definitely a change um, in mindset, not only here in the UK, um, but crucially at grassroots level. There's um, quite a bit of government money that's been sent abroad to um, change mindsets uh, there. And obviously that will then transfer to across the world if the mindsets at the grassroots are changed. So I think we are getting there. I really want to hear more about that. But just that grassroots was interesting because I was reading not long ago about a lady called Yatta who in Liberia, who'd been a former FGM practitioner, but she changed now and was actually working as a caterer. And I think that's where, is that money going to enable culture change through enabling others to work differently and not be paid uh, yes. to, to perform FGM? Do you, do you think that's going to work? Absolutely, 100%. I know that from personal experience and I know as you know Hazel I'm involved with the Divinity Foundation in Kenya 
it's a Birmingham charity, but but based within Kenya in the work that it's doing is at grassroots with the Maasai. And I go there every year and, and some of the work that they're doing, which again is kind of happening across Africa, albeit this isn't just an African issue, is about having those conversations with the cutters. And I remember the first time I went to Africa, which was uh, 2016, just after I'd climbed Mount Kilimanjaro <laughs> to raise some money for them. Um, I, I actually asked the CEO of the charity if I could have an audience with some of the cutters to kind of try and understand from their perspective why they do it. And, and some of the work that, that she is doing is fabulous around re-educating the cutters. Um, some of the conversations that I had with the cutters were really um, eye-opening actually, and just showed me that the way we can get through is, is about, it's all through education, because what, what isn't understood is that the negative health implications from FGM are caused by FGM. And also knowing that cutters are doing this primarily because it's their income. It's what puts the food on their table and they're paid very well, very, very well. So what our charity is doing is working with cutters to help them have alternative jobs such as um, in agriculture or um, by sewing. We've been teaching them how to sew sanitary pads so that they can be reused as well and, and so they can sell those and also jewellery as well because obviously there's a big tourist trade in, in Kenya. So yeah, it, it, it's a lot of work going on. That's really exciting to hear that some money is being used so practically and, yeah. um, and making change. That's great. So you, you talked earlier, but well, let's just clarify Cutter for, for our listener who may not um, understand that. Often a FGM practitioner can be called a Cutter, can't they? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes they're called, sometimes they're referred to as midwives because they do, they, they, they birth children, but also they're responsible in their communities, usually an older woman in the community. Um, which are responsible for carrying out the FGM on, on girls. Um, now, I find yeah. that interesting that there's a dual role there. So they might be performing FGM on a young girl, but usually before, even before 10. Yes. And, yeah. and then they're going to be there at the birth of the child, because from what I picked up, that, that's the great complications then, aren't they, in the birth? Absolutely. Um, particularly with dark skin. When it's cut, it, it forms very thick scarring and very thick tissue, which doesn't stretch. So if you can imagine if, if all of this, their genitalia is being cut, there's going to be a lot of keloid scarring there, which, which won't stretch, which causes complications during childbirth. And then indeed, the most severe type of FGM type 3, which involves um, taking away the clitoris and the labia and then sewing the wound up again, leaving only a tiny hole for a woman to urinate and menstruate and have sex if it's possible that's just something that's that just happens and that's really hard to for for birth afterwards but not only it, it causes the the women i remember from talking to many survivors as as some of them like to call themselves and i understand that uh, that it really is causes a great deal of pain as well i think we used to talk and we were doing a lot more work with working around changing attitudes with men where, where yeah. have you got there because that was thought it was quite a passionate thought that if we could educate and i mean in in inverted commas there men around all these symptoms and issues it might solve a lot of the problem yeah i think everybody's got to be in the conversation about what is fgm what are the harmful implications you know everybody needs to be educated 
Um, certainly for some communities, it's done to promote marriageability for a child. Uh, and very often a, a girl or a woman won't be accepted as a marriage partner if they haven't been cut. So a family will do that at what they perceive as love for that child in having that child cut. But what we've said is, you know, if, if a man is asking for an uncut woman, then the practice will stop. But again, it's about teaching the men the implications for a woman and for his potential future children. And so it's about community mindsets changing within the communities. Um, but it's really difficult as, a, as a, a white UK woman going into a community, which this is a, a traditional, uh, very long-standing custom that identifies them uh, in part, part of their culture. Uh, for, for me to go in and, and talk to them about this is very difficult. This is why we need to be empowering communities to be able to change within. Yes, I, I quite agree with you there. And I think when I used to work with many of the parents at one of our schools, um, raising awareness across different ethnicities, I was always most careful. And it was from, was from talking to you that we didn't judge because judgment yeah. didn't has no place here because yeah. of the cultural longevity of this. I mean, we're even talking Pharaoh time, aren't we? Absolutely. It's believed to date back to the Pharaohs. That's right. But education keeps coming through, doesn't it, in our conversation? And I remember that you used to be quite passionate about encouraging secondary school children to campaign and to really get that information. Is that still going in Birmingham? Is that quite strong? Um, yes, it is. But I think the result of, you know, COVID from the last 12 months and, and lack of funds, really, kind of as, as I think we don't think we've seen it as much as we have done in the past Hazel but it's definitely something that I always want to encourage because that you know we've, we've got to be educating our kids in schools um, to be able because kids very rarely will know this is going to happen to them so we need to educate them so they know to be able to raise the alarm if they're worried and who's best to do that to to other kids is, is kids themselves you you, I know, have had um, uh, dealings with Integrate Bristol as it was and Integrate UK as it is now. And that is um, an organisation which is focused on the children, delivering that education to others. And I know Integrate still do that to other schools within the UK. They have funding to do that. So I just think it's really impactful when kids are, are giving that message to themselves. Yes, it is. And, and the education um, that we put into primary schools in Birmingham, um, I went on tour with Lisa Davis, our operating officer, and we walked, walked one summer all the way around delivering a lesson pack. And um, it was for 10, 11 year old girls and boys. And that was one of the hardest things to, to motivate some schools to do with boys. It was oh, a yeah. real, real challenge. Yeah. But a story is that one of our boys went home and spoke to his mum, who had a great relationship with, and said, this didn't happen to you, did it, my mum? And she couldn't tell him because she knew how desperately upset he would be. She said she would later, because I challenged her and said, really, just what you've been saying, but where will we go if we can't open up? And she said, I'll tell him when he's older, but not at this age. He would be upset. I just thought that was great. such respect for her in that yeah. way. Yeah. And that just shows you how how hidden it is, really, as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So with your with going over to Mount Kilimanjaro, how many times have you been now? I, I know I've heard of one trip. Are you going out there regularly? Yeah, I, I go out every year. Um, so it's a regular feature now and the, the group keeps growing <laughs> taking over there 
So we, we've got nurses going, we've got teachers going, we've got all sorts of people, lots of police officers going. Um, and generally um, what we, we do is part of, we, when we, we obviously all pay for ourselves and we take annual leave to do this, it's not a part of our role. Mm. And um, we, we will pay so much money and that will fund some projects to do with the community whilst we're over there. Um, they've also got a rescue centre um, of 30 girls. So the money that we raised climbing Kilimanjaro um, managed to uh, build another accommodation block so they could have more girls there. Um, and that is that is just amazing. It's all self-sustained. So, yeah, when we go over, we just do we do loads of work within the community. We go out to the community. So to the Maasai, the little Maasai huts and the little villages, um, talking to groups of men, because obviously you can't you can't work with them together out there. You have to work with men. So, um, so we'll literally be under the under the trees with Kilimanjaro in the background. Absolutely amazing. You have to really pinch yourself um, that you're having these conversations. And, and then we go into schools as well and um, and we talk to the children um, we deliver food packages we do as I say we do a kind of we invite children from the local villages into the rescue center where they have a three-day retreat football match which is we encourage local um, teams from different villages and it's all about FGM um, and messaging about FGM all the football shirts have anti-FGM messaging on and it, they pay play for a trophy which actually is in memory of um, one of my colleagues who we lost on Kilimanjaro. So they pay for, play for that annually. Uh, it's very competitive, let me tell you. <laughs> um, and they also get some money as well. And last year we asked, because it was, it was predominantly men playing the football games, and we challenged them that if they were to bring a female team from their village to, uh, to um, compete the, this year, that they'd get extra money so it's just about encouraging them to empower women and be seen as an equal and what's the impact what's the impact of these football matches oh it just gets everybody talking doesn't it you know I, I think it's really difficult to measure the true impact of it I mean what we hear is that they don't want to practice FGM anymore and that the men are really thinking about it because ordinarily they wouldn't be involved with it it's the women that carry out this practice they just know it happens and just kind of Mm. acquiesce but it is Mm. for them really Mm. um so yeah i I think things are changing what we're told is what we're told by them is that the attitudes are changing and we hope that's the case so when you say it is for the men you're saying you're going back to that marriageability yeah so yeah yeah. and it's enabling them to understand that it's it's not that is not the key to to the happy marriage I suppose really absolutely absolutely real wide conversation I imagine you have to have with the girls who you said you meant you've used the word refuge so how how do the girls go how if it's seen as a refuge how do they get themselves there what makes them go organization that I work with work does work with the police they've also got a good relationship with the park wardens because it's in the middle of Amboseli National Park so literally you're surrounded by wildlife as you can tell it's, it's quite a dangerous place to be um, and we know some of the girls from the rescue centre have um, have literally run away from their villages um, into the wilderness um, because they know it's going to happen because it's happened to their older sibling or auntie or and they've been they've become aware of it and they've run away from it. the park warden to pick them up and take them into the rescue centre so yeah either one of those ways really nav also works uh, that's the ceo works with um community members in the villages and very often she'll have a tip off from one of the village members to say that it's going to happen and then they'll go and do a rescue mission which is is amazing and saving those girls from fgm but you know this is a challenge because 
could I say you're interfering in family life? You're you're going right to the heart of someone's family. And, you know, I don't know how I'd feel if um, somebody interfered to that level. How do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah. it is difficult. And it's, it's a real balance, isn't it? But FGM has to be seen as child abuse. It's violence against women and girls, and it's harmful in every in every aspect. And, you know, once FGM is carried out, that's it. You know, there's no going back. And those implications are going to be there for life. Not only the physical implications, but the psychological implications as well. And I think even where children can be removed to the rescue centre um, and then that risk assessed, because they also have a social worker at the rescue centre who is employed, and, and then potentially girls go back to their families later on. It might only be for a short period of time at the rescue centre. So, yeah, but, but it's all governed by um, the authorities and everything. It's all, it's all above board and, and you know, regulated as, as far as it can be regulated over there. So have you got any sort of anecdotal stories really of a, of a child where it made such a difference to them? And have they come back and told you? Do you get any feedback from those girls who were saved from having FGM? Do they, do they come back and work with you or do they say, you know, it's changed my life. I've gone on to do this. What happens with those girls? I think um, having been two, two kind of sides to this answer really the one side is when I'm over there um, and we're having those three-day rescue uh, those three-day camps if you like at the rescue centre with girls from the villages coming in as well as having our rescue centre girls there you can absolutely see the difference between the two of them and how confident and how able they are to say no to things Um, they feel empowered to say no um, and are working with the village the girls from the villages so that they feel the same so in that you can absolutely see the difference between the girls from the rescue center and the the inputs that they've had the positivity um and ability to challenge but not only that some of the girls as they get older some of the girls have gone to schools in nairobi where they're funded they're sponsored to go to this the particular schools and they've all got high, you know, high aspirations of being a pilot or a teacher or a nurse or a midwife. And, you know, they've, they've, they've gone to school. They've, the organisation have put them through school, made sure that they weren't harmed. And now they are achieving at secondary school and what would be classed as, as university and, and really getting on well and, and achieving, which is something they wouldn't ordinarily have had. So, um so I think the organisation has only been going since 2012. So um, it's difficult to, to tell to that degree yet, because sometimes very often the girls come in quite young. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's and I love the aspiration in there all the way through. You're speaking it. It's, you know, where can you push and what's the future? And, yeah. and also that that change of attitude. But that's great out of UK. It's fabulous to hear. But what about our girls in the UK? What what do you think we've managed to actually do for those families, those children who might have been at risk from FGM? Do you think the work you're doing in MASH, your um, safeguarding hub or education happening through schools, do you think it is saving children? Do you know how many you might have saved from FGM? I think it's really difficult, and and the press very often come down asking why we haven't had it as uh, we haven't had prosecutions. Mm-hmm. We've had one you know, in all the time that it's been against the law. And there are many reasons for that. And we've touched on some of those already about the fact that it's so hidden. But for me, it's really important that we focus as well on the prevention. 
because uh, we can stop this before it happens and not have to prosecute someone then that's that's great yeah um, we have got FGM protection orders which were brought in in 2015 by the government they kind of shadow the forced marriage protection orders which were brought in, in at the end of um, 2008 which were very successful which we can put these place these protection orders in place to um, to make sure that behaviour is managed so that the children are protected. It can include um, taking away passports if we feel that's necessary. Um, if they are to go abroad, we can ask that it's for a limited period and they inform somebody when they get back so that we can speak to the child. Um, and anybody can apply for one of these orders. You know, the, the family themselves, because we know that things are changing. We know that mindsets are changing and it might be that mum and dad don't want this to happen but they're getting pressure from extended family or community and they can apply for orders themselves. But in terms of um, quantifying how many we've protected, that's really, that's really difficult uh, because I think every agency has got a part to play and it's not down to one agency to make change. It's about us all working together and that's how we'll, that's how we'll end FGM. I, 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 within a generation too, hopefully, I quite agree. What part can we as teachers play? What should we be doing? What could we do more? Um, I think there's a reluctance as, as kind of you alluded to really in, in talking about FGM um, for, for many reasons, I think within schools, but I think it's such an important thing to talk about. And teachers have an ongoing relationship with parents. So it's about encouraging that trust and, and confidence within teachers so that they can talk to them. I think the other thing as well is that we, we know that we have cutters here in the UK, it doesn't just happen abroad. We have intelligence to suggest that we have them in Birmingham, Coventry, you know, other parts of the UK. We don't know who they are, otherwise we would have acted on that. But the more, it's unlikely that a community member is going to come to me as a police officer and tell me who that is. It's more likely to come to the attention of somebody who's got trust and confidence of that community member which could be a teacher, it could be a health visitor, you know, it could be a midwife, but it's about us all working together to be able to identify who they are so that we can go and, and, and prosecute to, to take them out of action from cutting all of those girls. Does that make sense? Yes, and, and I do think it's real improved training for our teachers. And I think they will, you know, be putting their hands up for some. It's statutory yeah. that there has to be yeah. that training every year, but it's the depth it goes to, isn't yeah. it? And it's that knowledge that there's that very stereotypical view, isn't there, of a family or a child who might be at risk of FGM. And we need to change that uh, yeah. because it's, I mean, how far spread is it now? Mean, which sorry? countries would you say it's quite pre prevalent okay. in presently? Well, what I would direct you to is something that's constantly being updated is the National FGM Centre, which is run by Bernardo's. Um, they have an interactive map on their website and you can click over whatever country it is you're looking at um, and it'll tell you like percentage of mm. FGM which is carried out, what type of FGM it is usually, what the age range is usually. Again, my caveat with that is don't stick to it rigidly. If you've got a child that's outside of that range or if there's a country that's not shaded, there's no research, don't think that it's not happened um, because it's, obviously this is something that's evolving. But I think in, in answer to your question, um, obviously the 30 countries in Africa who we know and have research on that carry out FGM. Um, and if you want more information about those specific countries, 28 Too Many is a, an organisation that carries out research. They've got some great research into each of those individual countries available free of charge. 
Um, but also, you know, the Middle East, so Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Syria, all of those countries, we know practice FGM, Indonesia, um, you know, it, parts of India and Pakistan, the Dawoodi Bora community practice FGM. Um, and there's, if you look on the National FGM Center website as well, you'll see pockets of Russia as well. It's highlighted again. That is uh, predominantly the Dawoodi communities um, that, that that are living there as well. Um, so it's something we're constantly learning about, and we need to keep an open mind. Well, that awareness is something I want to really push through through with teachers wherever I am. I often bring up the work that you did and how I became involved with through Birmingham against FGM as, yeah. as well. I'm just thinking now, Jill, of a teacher who may have a real concern and worry about a child in their class who would they turn to I think initially um, obviously they would have a designated safeguarding lead within their own school um, they can also um, have a conversation with the, their local MASH the multi-agency safeguarding hub um, but also there's organizations like the National FGM Centre um, or the NSPCC have an FGM helpline for communities and for professionals who's that's available 24 7 who people can just ask for advice from so but obviously if you're concerned about a child it's important to make that referral into to children's services into the MASH ask ask any questions that as long as you're asking questions which aren't going to endanger that child and put them at further risk um, and then make that informed referral through to children's services. And please don't forget as well the mandatory reporting. So um, that is if you have a child who, uh, so anybody, a child under 18, who has told you themselves that they've had FGM, or if you've seen, if you're a health professional, for example, what you think is FGM, it doesn't have to be confirmed, then you have to report that to 101, to the police. Okay, thank you. Fab advice there. Thank you, Jill. So I know you, Jill, you, you will never stop. Uh, yet I know retirement in the police isn't far off, as you mentioned uh, to me the other day. So what will, what will you do when you sort of move out of that police domain? How, how are you going to continue or will you continue? Oh, gosh, yes. I think this will be with me till the day I die. <laughs> and, uh, and my three daughters know that as well. You know, they're like, oh, gosh, mum. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I'll continue working with the Divinity Foundation, um, potentially looking at expanding that potentially to become something in the UK that we can work with and provide um, services. Uh, but again, it's all about funding, isn't it? You know, it's got to come from somewhere. Um, so perhaps I don't have the time to focus on that at the moment because of my full time role. But that's something I, I, I look forward to doing in the future. You know, still going over to Kenya, probably more so than I do now. And 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 kind of just spreading the word more really perhaps even going into schools to offer lessons to children um a bit of consultancy around that really um i don't know <laughs> the world's your oyster jill it's I exciting it, it yeah. is but i certainly yeah. want to be involved in the divinity foundation as well so when when you're working that and in thinking how to expand do think of me Thank you, Hazel. I will. And thank you for this, Jill. You've been so interesting to talk to. And I really wish you the best of luck on just saving girls in our country across the world against FGM. Thank you, Jill. No problem. Thank you for your time and thank you, everybody. And good luck. We can end FGM together. We can. 